good morning, everyone. I'm Mark, and uh, this is E3, and we are in the second week of a series where we're really looking at what it means to live in light of the resurrection, and really unpacking that and trying to discover, you know, what does it look like and how do we live out the life that God has envisioned for us? And we're doing that uh, through the grid of what Jesus said was the most important thing to do in life. When it was asked what was the most important thing, he said, this is the most important thing. I want you to love your Lord, your God, with all of your heart, all of your soul, all of your mind, all of your strength, but equally as important, love your neighbor as yourself. Now, if this is the most important thing, you would think, hey, you know what, as followers of Christ, that, that we should really have a crystal idea of what it means to live out the great commandment or the most important commandment in the 21st century. That we should be able to say, if somebody said, hey, how are you loving God with all of your heart? We'd be able to say, well, this is how I am loving God with all of my heart. But I think the reality is, and it was true for me, um, and maybe it's true for you, is that it's kind of an abstract kind of concept, and it's hard to articulate what loving God with all of your heart means in the 21st century here in Tallahassee, every, you know, Monday through Friday, or hopefully Saturday and Sunday too. And, uh, you know, what does that look like? So I uh, have comprised this kind of this metaphor based on my swim from Alcatraz Island and, and swimming in general to help uh, uh, articulate the integrated nature of the Great Commandment. And uh, when Jesus was asked, what, the, what is the most important thing? He says, you know, he said, holistically love God and the love people. And I was thinking about this and like the one thing that you need when you swim is what you need absolutely first is water. Now, water is an interesting thing. You know, water is this thing that, that gives life, right? We can't live without water, but water can also kill you. You know, we've all seen kind of the footage of, of the floods and the tsunamis and things like that. And uh, even though we can't live without water, water can be a very destructive force in our life. And the same is true with our heart, with our emotional well-being and our relationships. That, that you know what, relationships can be life-giving, but relationships can tear us apart as well. Our emotional state can, can change in an instant. Uh, I was reading and I found a quote from Jerome Fleischman, and, and he wrote this, Most of us are swimming against the tides of trouble the world knows nothing about. We need only a bit of praise or encouragement and we'll make the goal. You know, we, we, all of us have adversity in our lives. All of us are swimming against the tides of, the, of this trouble. And, and really, very few people know the adversity that each and every one of us are facing. And there also the reality is that, that we all need encouragement to move toward this goal of experiencing a rich and satisfying life. 
But sometimes, you know, the water can be too scary, you know, the, that, that we're, we're, you know, put in a situation in order to move forward, we have to face our fears. This is true for Peter. One day there was a, a major storm happening and they were out fishing and him and the Peter and the disciples were, other disciples were hanging out and doing all this stuff and, and just things had gone bad in a hurry. You know, the seas were calm when they went out and then it got all rough. And Peter was at a certain point of trust in his faith with Christ, but he needed to move forward to be able to, to live out the life that God had envisioned for him. And during this storm, when they thought all was lost, they saw in the sea and the horizon, they, they saw Jesus. And Peter calls out to Jesus and, and says, Jesus, you know, do you want me to get out of the boat and come to you? Now, I think Peter was probably thinking that maybe it was kind of a rhetorical question, like, no, Peter, I'll come to you. Don't worry about it. That's not what Jesus said. He says, yes, come. Oh. <laughs> it's like probably not what he wanted to hear, right? But that's what Jesus said. Yeah, hey, Jesus, you want me to, to face my fears? Like I'm terrified here. You want me to get out of the boat and come to you? Yeah, that's a good idea. Why don't you do that? So Peter went over the side of the boat and walked on the water toward Jesus. But check out what happens. He faces fear, right? He got out of the boat. He was walking on the water. Then he started to trust the master, trust what Jesus said. But when he saw the strong wind and waves, he was terrified and began to sink. Save me, Lord, he shouted. You see, he took this, this step of faith and he was well-intentioned, but the storms of life, his fear, his emotions, his, his, his lack of faith started to, to invade his world. And as he looked around, his old coping mechanisms, his own mind saying, wait a second, people cannot walk on water and in storms, people die. And his... His emotional side started taking over, and at that point, he stopped trusting the Master. He stopped trusting Jesus, and he began to sink. In, in my life, I've had uh, two uh, major water crossings in my life. And I want to share kind of how these both kind of played out in my life. The uh, one of them, which I'll share first, is my swim from Alcatraz Island. Now, Alcatraz uh, and the, the San Francisco Bay has, has tides uh, that, that flow in and out, and they can be as fast as six miles per hour. And uh, the problem is, like, a, a, an accomplished athlete, a well-trained athlete, can only swim about 2.5 miles per hour for any amount of distance. So you can see that there's a, there's a math problem, right? It's like if you went on a treadmill, you ever watch like Biggest Losers in it, a Loser or anything, and they, they crank up the treadmill to like 12 miles per hour? 
and they can't keep up with 12 miles per hour, maybe they can only run nine miles per hour, what happens? They go flying off the back. Well, the same is true, but instead of flying off the back of the treadmill, you get sucked out into the Pacific Ocean, into the Red Triangle, and you are eaten by Jaws. That is what happens to you. So, so they know... They don't want you eaten by Jaws. You don't want to be eaten by Jaws. So they have these masters, these guys who have literally swam from Alcatraz Island to the shore hundreds of times. And they have learned all of these strategies. And when you get to go to Alcatraz, they offer all of these classes. They're like, do you want to be eaten by a shark? No. Well, you should take this class. (laughs) Excellent idea. We're going to go and take this class. And, And You get to hear from the master, somebody who has actually done it hundreds of times. And it was interesting listening to them. They were like, okay, you know where you want to go is here. And here you are. And what you need to do is swim 90 degrees away from your destination because of how the currents and and everything. We've worked out how all the the tides are going to be with the time, the specific time that you hit the water and all of this. And this, you know, you have to be swimming toward this. Even though you want to go here, the tides are going to take you right there. You know, intellectually, they're like, okay, you know, I get that. And that, okay, that's very interesting. You know, they're they're also said that, that, hey, you know what? In the middle of San Francisco Bay, that, that they, San Francisco Bay used to also be the San Francisco dump. Like before, like the environmentalists took over and everything. They just take their trash, they put it on a barge, they would go out and they would dump it right in the middle of San Francisco Bay. Now, what had happened, and I, I assume that they weighted it down somehow or something like that, there is now a mound in San Francisco Bay. And what this mound has created is, is basically the water is coming and it, and it diverts two different ways. And one current goes a lot faster than the other. So these masters who have, they've put GPSs on them and they've, they've showed them if they've gone one way, how long it takes them and how far they have to go for the swim. You know, we're looking at it on the screens and everything and they're saying, but you want to go over this. And the way to do that is when you hit the water, you got to swim like mad at, you know, 90 degrees at where, away from where you want to go, swim like mad, and, and you'll be able to get around the San Francisco trash mound. You know, in all of this, you know, for an endurance athlete, that's like the last thing that you want to do as an endurance athlete is go out and, and expend, you know, a huge amount of energy at the beginning of the race. And we're sitting here and, you know, in our minds going like, who are we going to trust? We're going to trust the guys who've done it hundreds of times. Are we going to trust ourselves? So I was able to uh, uh, do the race with my friends. There's one right there, Jamie Thompson and uh, his wife, who all did much better than I did. But uh, uh and, and we completed the race, and, and we listened to what we were told, and, and we succeeded. The second tale came a lot different. It happened when I was, I was nine years old, a little Marky story. And I was a cute little kid, I got to tell you. So, uh, I, and 
the, the details are a little fuzzy because I haven't been able to really quite work it out, but this is the fact that happened. Somehow, or for some reason, my parents put me on a plane to Portland, Oregon to go be with some family friends for a while. I don't know if my cuteness had run out and they were tired of me, uh, but for some reason, I ended up in Portland, Oregon for, for a time being with some of uh, some family friends while they were off doing something, I don't know. But so we were there and, and, and we were going, to, you know, camping and doing all these kind of things. And then one day that we went out and did, we're doing this day hike. And as we were out, we, we uh, kind of got... Uh, a little late in the day, and we had to end up, we couldn't go back the way we came. We needed to get across the river in order to get back in time for dinner. And the dad was there, and we were following the dad, and I was nine years old, and 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 he's like going, all right, we're going to have to cross this river, and uh, so you guys just all follow me. And, and I remember, you know, little Marky, nine years old, sitting there and looking, and going, there's no way. This is like a rushing river. Like, I, I'm not a smart kid, but I mean, I, I, I knew that I was little and I knew I couldn't cross the river. And he, he, looked, he saw my anxiety. He said, don't worry, not here, farther up the river. I'm like, okay. Phew. So we walk, you know, it seems forever. And we finally get to, you know, someplace in his mind, you know, that he thought this is a good place to cross. And he stops. He says, okay, we're here. Let's cross. Now, I'm looking at it. I go, it doesn't look any different. Like all, all the differences now is my legs are even more tired from making me, you know, walk up this stupid riverbank. And now you're going to make me cross this river. But he's all, you know, he encouraged me. He told me I had to do it and, uh, and decided, you know, that we were going to, we were going to cross with the other. So he's all like, but this is what you need to do. Just follow me and, and you'll be okay. So we started crossing this river, you know, step after step. And as I get getting deeper and deeper, the current of this rushing river on, on my little nine-year-old body was getting heavier and heavier and heavier until my legs came out from under me and I got rushed down the river. And what became one of the most terrifying experiences of my life. I actually still, every time I see a river, I break down and cry. All right, maybe that's not true. But, but what, you know, I was thinking about this, and what was the difference between really a much harder swim or crossing Alcatraz Island versus crossing this river? And it all came down to who I trusted, right? In the Alcatraz swim, that there was someone who had done it, who knew about it, who, who, who had, had taken the time to think about it and, and, and to instruct us. It was very well thought through. The other one, I, I don't think he was trying to kill me. But, you know, unintentionally dead, it's still dead right? You know, he just, he just thought it would be okay. He'd never done it before. He didn't know how strong of a swimmer or how strong my legs were. He just, he was hungry and he wanted to get home. That was his motivation. And I think that when it comes down to, you know, we, we, we think about what, what does it mean 
to love God with all of our heart right here in the 21st century. And I think it really comes down to, you know, how do we interact and tame this emotional, you know, river or tides in our lives? In fact, I would go so far to saying that, you know what, loving God with all of your heart in the 21st century is this, patterning your emotional life to bring glory to God. Patterning your emotional and relational life to bring glory to God. And when we trust Christ with those things that transcend kind of our initial emotional coping mechanism patterns of life that we've put in and we start to trust the master even though it may not seem right, then we bring glory to him. In Ephesians chapter 3, verse 17, Paul writes it this way, then Christ will make his home in your hearts as you trust him. As you trust the master, Christ will make your, his home in your hearts. Your roots will grow down into God's love and keep you strong. But I got to tell you that trusting the master does not always seem right. You know, when I sat in my don't be eaten by sharks class in San Francisco, I intellectually got it. I understood that if there was a current going at three miles per hour that I needed to swim 90 degrees out of the, the, out of the direction that I wanted to end up. And the, the com combination of both of them would land me in the right place. I intellectually got it. I even trusted the master while I was sitting there in the class. I also got the, the, the San Francisco dump thing. I mean, it grossed me out a little bit thinking about it, but I got it. I understood it. But I got to tell you, once I hit that water and, and the water was cold, even though I was expecting it, and 2,000 other athletes, you know, all around me, and the wind waves, and just the everything is going on, I can tell you that the intellectual knowledge that the master had given me started to become secondary. Because you know what? I just didn't want to be in the water anymore. And I could see that land was a heck of a lot closer over there than way over there. And if I'm swimming away from land, that just doesn't make a whole lot of sense in my kind of anxiety state. And the same thing is true, that, that, that our emotional kind of reaction, you know, how we respond to things, how we cope with things in life, that most of it is based on our initial gut feeling of how we think it should be. The only problem with that is that it can end in disaster. Like I think about those guys, you know, you know, escape from Alcatraz and everybody's like, you know, oh, we don't know if they, they lived or, or if they, you know, or if they died or something like that. And I remember seeing through all the classes and I'm like, oh, maybe they did everything. I got halfway through that swim and I'm like, they're dead. <laughs> no doubt in my mind, there is no chance that they crossed it. 
because their emotional uh, uh, minds or, or, or emotional selves would have taken over. And in our life, as we are following Christ, you know, we all have these coping mechanisms. We ha- all have these things that, 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 that we have put into place. And it comes down to a point, it's like, who are we going to trust? Are we going to trust the master? And what he says is the best way to live out our life. Or are we going to trust our instincts? Sometimes it just does not feel right. You know, I often joke about doing a series here called Things I Wish Were Not in the Bible. I mean, just things that, you know what, go against my initial instinct. Like giving the first portion of everything that we earn back to God. It goes against every bit, every selfish bone in my body. Does not make any sense. I sit there and every time I tithe and everything, I sit there and I go, how does this work? It doesn't make any sense. But at some point in your life as a follower of Christ, you have to say, am I going to trust the, matter, the, the master? Am I going to swim 90 degrees out of the direction that I'm going in order to get to where I want to go? Or am I going to continue trusting myself? Or how about this one? Keeping the Sabbath. Keeping a, a, a day set aside to reevaluate your relationship with God and to, to work on your relationships in your life. How does taking a day off away from work when all of your competitors are, are working and getting a leg up on you, how, do, how does that work? And we have this tension. Our emotional side says, if I don't work, my competitors are going to beat me. But God says, you know what? You need to trust me on this. Even though it seems 90 degrees out of the direction that you think you want to go, where you want to go, this is the way to do it. Or how about this one? Loving others is myself. that's That's a tough one. Wish it wasn't in the Bible. I don't. I don't want to love others as myself. That's hard. That's hard to do. I remember trying to uh, explain this to Madison when she was much younger. And I gave her this wonderfully eloquent and persuasive speech and, and, and reasonings of why she should love others as herself. And after I was done and I was waiting for her applause, she looked at me and said, doesn't work. (laughs) Doesn't work. You know, it doesn't. Because we went on to talk about it. I'm like, well, but this is what Jesus says. And she's all like, yeah, but they're not going to love me as themselves. Back. Well, that was a really bad sentence, but you know what I mean. Yeah, you know what? In our, in our emotional kind of, you know, coping mechanism, loving others as ourselves doesn't make any sense. doesn't. But for some reason, our master, 
our God says that this is an important thing in our lives. Paul talks about it this way in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 27. Instead, God chose things the world considers foolish in order to shame those who think they are wise. And he chose things that are powerless to shame those who are powerful. God chose the things that the world consider foolish to shame those who think they are wise. It is foolish to give away the first 10% of your income foolishness. But God chose the things of the world the world considers foolish in order to shame the wise. It is foolish to swim 90 degrees away from your intended destination. It is foolish to swim with all of your might as soon as you hit the water in an endurance race. It is foolish. But God chose Things the world consider foolish in order to shame the wise. It is foolish to take and keep the Sabbath. But God chose to keep the, do the, use the things that the world thinks is foolish in order to shame the wise. It is foolish to love others as yourself. But God chose the things that the world considers foolish in order to shame the wise. Isaiah said it this way, For just as the heavens are higher than the earth, so my ways are higher than your ways, and my thoughts are higher than your thoughts. Those of us who are followers of Christ, we have to trust the Master. But sometimes the current is stronger than you think. Sometimes, you know, you think that you can make it. But it whips you away. That, that our emotional state can change in an instant. And that's why it's important to have a trust in someone who has been there and who is the master. There's a book I read, one of the most transformational books I've read in a long time. Outside of the Bible, I know I have to say that, but non-Bible book. <laughs> Chip and Dan Heath wrote this book called Switch. It's how people make change. And in this book, they talk about Plato's Republic, which says this, In our heads, we have a rational charioteer who has to rein in an unruly horse that barely yields to a horsewhip and goad combined. They go on to say, talking about the... the the uh, tension between kind of our emotions and our intellect and how that plays out. And this is what they say. Our emotional side is an elephant and our rational side is the rider. Perched atop the elephant, the rider holds the reins and seems to be the leader. But the rider's control is precarious because the rider is so small relative to the elephant. Anytime the six-ton elephant and the rider disagrees about which direction to go, the rider is going to lose. He is completely overmatched. Same is true in our life. That loving God with all our heart and bringing glory to God with all of our emotions and all of our relationships 
means yielding our elephant, yielding our emotional side to the master. You know, we're all faced with the question, who to trust, right? Who do we trust? Do we trust the master in my swim metaphor? Or do we trust the hungry dad who just wants to get back? You know, we're all faced with, with these kind of questions. Do we follow the master or do we follow the person who just happens to be in front of us? Well, let me put it this way. How many of you would get financial advice from someone who is bankrupt? How about this? Relational guidance from someone who has a trail of broken relationships. We need to trust those who have a track record of living and experiencing a rich, satisfying, and joyous life. People who are experiencing the life that God has envisioned for them. Like people like Paul in the, in the Bible. I, I, sometimes I just, wouldn't it be awesome to have like a Paul in your life? Like in Philippians 4, verse 12, Paul writes this, I know how to live on almost nothing or with everything. I've learned the secret of living in every situation. Whenever, whatever it is, whenever I am in, it has, bleh, sorry. Whether it is with a full stomach or empty, with plenty or little, for I can do anything, everything through Christ who gives me strength. Wouldn't it be amazing when our emotional, our elephant is raging and we are out of control to have somebody in our life who can speak into us, who, who knows the secret of living in every situation. Someone who knows the promises of God. And we'll speak them back to us in our time of need. Things like when Isaiah wrote in 41, Don't be afraid, for I am with you. This is God speaking. Don't be discouraged, for I am your God. I will strengthen you and help you. I'll hold you up with my victorious hand. Or David wrote this, I know the Lord is always with me. I will not be shaken, for he is right beside me. So what is loving God? with all of our heart? What is living a relational and emotional excellent life that brings glory to God? Well, first is understanding the truth that the quality of our relationships will ultimately determine the quality of our life. I say it this way, Life comes down to having a right relationship with God and a right relationship with people. Everything else is just commentary. And I can tell you from experience, and I think you'll know that this is true, that you can have tons of money in the bank. You can be living in a dream house. You can have power and influence. You can have everything the world says that you need. But if things aren't right with God or and or things aren't right at home, it doesn't matter. Right? It doesn't matter. When, when your relationships are broken, 
everything is broken. The secret that Jesus held, uh, hid in plain sight was that all life comes down to having a right relationship with God and a right relationship with people. And the ultimate blue beauty and value that this life has is the relational tapestry that we weave. At the end of our lives, we can have a beautiful relational tapestry with each thread a different person and a different encounter. All different colors and cultures and experiences all woven together to be the tapestry, the relational tapestry of our life. But the truth is, in our our relational tapestry that we add and we subtract, right? We have all suffered and, and cried through broken relationships. It's painful to take the threads out of the tapestry. And it not only takes the color and the texture away, but it also tears and hurts the whole tapestry. And what we want to do is to to live life in a way of emotional integrity, of relational integrity that brings a richness to our lives as we weave the fabric of the relationships in our life. And I was thinking about what does it mean to be an excellent friend? What is an excellent relationship? Well, I was first thinking, well, what's common? What's common for all of us? You know, what, what is truly a friend? Well, first thing is, you know, a common relationship, and there's nothing wrong with this, it's just common. Like someone who knows you on site. Like you're at, you know, walking through the supermarket and somebody says, hi, Mark. And you say, hey, buddy. Or something, you know, that, that, it's, uh, that it's common, right? There's nothing wrong with that. I mean, we, we are all enriched by by, you know, nice people in, in our life. But that's common. That's, that's, not, that's not exceptional. It, that's, that, that's normal. I was also thinking about some other things, you know, what's common. Someone who will Facebook you on your birthday and wish you happy birthday. I mean, that, that, that's common. I, you know, I would expect people that I'm friends with on Facebook, you know, a little notification says it's Mark's birthday today, that they take the time to send a, 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 a Facebook uh, happy birthday. I mean, that's, that's really minimum standard, right? I don't even know that's common. Like, I grade my friends, and if you don't do that, you get an F for the day, right? You know, that, that, that there's just things that, you know, these are just kind of common things, you know, or someone who knows you well enough to engage in some sort of uh, surface conversation. All these things are common, and they're good, and, they're, and, they, and they enrich our lives. But, but it doesn't transcend into something that is uncommon or extraordinary or excellent. Like I was thinking about some things that makes an excellent relationship. Like someone who looks out for your best interest even when you're not there. I think 
that's uncommon. I think that that's extraordinary and unexpected, and that's excellent. That you know that we, even when you're not physically together, that somebody is looking out for your best interests. Or how about somebody who would sacrifice their time or their money or their energy to help you? That's uncommon, but it's excellent. Or how about this? Someone who has earned the relational right to speak into your life and to encourage you to live out the life that God has envisioned for you. Now, encouragement is such a great word, but Christendom has completely ruined it. I hate it when Christians take good words and screw it up. You know, the other, the other about a year ago, you know, the, the word encouragement, it, it, it's become... It's become different. It's no, encouragement is no longer encouragement in Christendom. Encouragement is criticism. There was a guy who came by here. He was, I found out later he's traveling the United States, and, and he, he told me his ministry was to travel around the United States and on Sundays go to as many churches that he, that he can, to, can and then after the gathering, encourage the pastor. And I'm like, oh, I'm listening to this going like, that's pretty interesting. So he says, I'm here to encourage you. I'm like, okay, encourage away. He started listing off everything that I did wrong and what was wrong with the church and all of this kind of stuff. I'm like, stop encouraging me. I can't take it anymore. No more encouragement. You know, it's... You know, it's becoming, you know, you know this, this kind of like weird thing. Like a lot of times we think, you know, oh, you know, somebody's going to encourage me that, that it's become this, this negative thing. Well, you know what? It's not meant to be a negative thing. It's meant to be a, a beautiful thing. And it's become a negative thing because people who do not have the relational right to speak truth in your life and encourage you to live out the life that God has envisioned for you have, have spoken in your life. I can tell you, and I'm, I'm just, the way I see it, and I've taken a lot of criticism for this or encouragement for, the, for, for this next statement. But you know what? We all have enough people sitting in the bleachers and sharpshooting us with encouragement. Like there's no shortage of people who are willing to point out what you are doing wrong and tell you to fix it. And this is what I'm going to say is, you know what? If you are not willing to walk with that person and help them in an intimate way experience the life that God has envisioned for them, then you have no business encouraging them. Period. Period. What we need to do is to connect with people on a real level and in a relational level way, say, you know what? I have seen you doing 
or experiencing this. And I got to tell you, I believe that God has so much more in store for you that you are missing out on what God has envisioned for your life. And I want to walk with you through this because I desperately want you to be able to experience the life that God has envisioned for you. You see the difference? Kind of this drive-by encouragement versus a commitment to another human being. That it changes everything. It can be the exact same thing, but everything changes when there is a relational price to be paid and a relational investment to be given. And I just want to just touch on this. When you do speak into that thing and you do make that commitment, make sure the problem is the problem, right? Like brokenness manifests itself in all sorts of different ways. And the manifestation is usually not the problem. Like, you know, alcoholism or, or gluttony or, or gambling or, or whatever. Take your pick. It, that may be a manifestation of the brokenness, but that's not the problem. And what ha- earning the relational right to speak into somebody's life and your commitment to them enables you to get beyond the manifestation and to actually start speaking life into the brokenness. So let me leave you with this. Emotional excellence is hard. Loving God with all your heart is hard. And it requires us to sacrifice, and it requires us to be gift givers of our time and our energy. It requires us to invest in other people and allow them to invest in us. And as we live uncommon, extraordinary lives, as we have extraordinary relationships and extraordinary uh, connection with God and extraordinary connection with others, that that will transcend what the world is currently experiencing. And ultimate glory will be given to God. you guys pray with me? Dear Lord, you are truly an awesome God. And I just uh, pray that you will impress upon us just the desire to not be drive-by encouragers, but to actually spend time and earn the relational right to weave our tapestry, our relational tapestry with others and to build something beautiful, to create something beautiful that will ultimately bring glory to you. God, I just pray that we can go forward and love you with all of our heart, all of our soul, all of our mind, and all of our strength, and is equally important, love others as ourselves, and trust you as our master. We love you, Lord Jesus.